Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. stand and just greet each other for a minute. Let's just bring the lights up. Why don't y'all stand and just greet each other? I don't check testing what you do. Am I on now? Can you hear me now? Okay, that's good. Check testing one, two, three. Okay, let me pray for us now. Make your way back to your seat. I think we're good. Let me pray for us, and we're going to begin this morning. Father, we just thank you again for the opportunity to worship, to gather together as believers, Lord, and and even with technical difficulties, Father, you're still King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, Lord, I pray that that the sermon that we're going to see this morning is, is, Father, from your heart. I pray you'd just remove my thoughts and my desires, Lord, and I pray you'd fill me instead with the power of the Spirit. May we learn from your word this morning. May you speak very clearly to us. May we be challenged. And through the power of your spirit, Father, may we understand and hear from you and be transformed more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I'll invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open up to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. If you didn't bring your Bible, we have a Bible available for you in the seat right in front of you. You can grab one of those. And we're going to be on page 847 this morning, 847, that's Mark chapter 11. We're continuing our study 
through the Gospel of Mark. And we've seen a lot of incredible things take place over the last several months. If you're new with us this morning, we've been studying through Mark for the last several months and really going chapter by chapter and verse by verse, understanding who Christ is, seeing his miracles, see the way he's lived and where he's walked and what he said. But this morning marks an important turning point for us in our study. Up until this point, Jesus has done great things. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Mark chapter 10. And we talked about the importance of the family because we looked at marriage and we looked at raising children and we looked at how we used our possessions from the glory, for the glory of the Lord. But this morning is different for us. Jesus has explained to his followers that he's got to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested, crucified on the third day. He's going to rise again. And it's at this point in Mark chapter 11, he's going to make it into Jerusalem and he's going to spend the final week of his life serving, teaching. Eventually he'll be crucified at the end of the week. Now, an interesting, just kind of a side note, if you've been kind of following along with us, Mark has taken 10 chapters to explain the first two and a half or so years of the ministry of Christ. That's about two-thirds of the gospel. A third of the gospel will be dedicated to the final week. Isn't that interesting? There's so much that Mark wants us to see in the final week, so much he wants us to understand. And this chapter is an interesting chapter because he's going to use the sandwich method again. I'll explain that in a few minutes when we get to that point. But I wanted to give you kind of the big picture first. I want you to kind of see where we're going so you can understand it and look forward. And as we walk through it together, hopefully see it in Scripture. The, I believe the main idea of this chapter is a contrast. We're going to see a contrast between the holiness of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the glory of Christ, and a group of people who are religiously active. This is important. They're religiously active, but they fail to have a deep abiding faith within so there's going to be these interesting comparisons all through this chapter of an outward religion compared to a deep, abiding, heartfelt, genuine faith from within. And we're going to see that on several different occasions this morning. So let's jump right in, Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, this is Jesus and his followers, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And when they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. I want to stop there this morning. This is the triumphal entry. It's a very important part of the ministry of Christ. It ushers in the final week of his life. Here's the first truth I want you to see this morning. Number one, religious activity does not necessarily bring lasting change. Religious activity does not necessarily bring lasting change. Now, the triumphal entry is filled with the grace and the glory and the beauty of the Lord. We're going to talk about that. We see this incredible moment in the history of the life of Christ 
where he enters Jerusalem for the final time. In just a few days, he'll be crucified. A few days after that, he'll rise from the dead. But the triumphal entry, I want you to understand, is, is filled with excitement and religious activity. But for the people that are there, there's no lasting effect on their life. Now, I want you to kind of understand this scripture, so let's walk through it together. Jesus is fulfilling, as he's done many times in the book of Mark, Old Testament prophecy. And he's proclaiming about himself, as he's done many times before, that he is Messiah. One of the ways he's going to do it is the way in which he rides into Jerusalem. This is interesting to me. I've read the triumphal entry account probably a hundred times in my life, as you have as well. I've studied through it. I've seen it. But one thing I noticed this particular week that I've never noticed before is that the first seven verses of chapter 11 are about a donkey. I thought that was interesting. Jesus explains to his followers, go get a donkey. He's going to be tied. He gives them instructions. Untie it. Bring them back. Here's what you say if people ask you. It's not until verse 7 that the Bible says they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Now, this is the first recorded time in Scripture that Jesus has ridden an animal. And it's not unintentional. Right? It wasn't an accident. It wasn't as just this happened and Mark wrote about it, didn't really think anything about it again. It's a picture and a reminder and a connection that he was Messiah. And here's why. If you think about a king and you understand, and this is a different kind of a idea for us because in the modern world we don't quite think like this. But when a king would enter a city in ancient times, he did it with great pomp and circumstance. He would usually ride in on a large horse, accompanied by followers. Music would play oftentimes. People would gather in the streets. Jesus instead chooses to ride in on a donkey. The Bible says he's humble riding in on a donkey. Now for us, we just kind of think, well, that's an interesting idea. Why would Jesus ride in on a donkey instead of a horse? Why would it be different than most kings? Why would Jesus choose to do it this way? But remember, this is important. For Mark, he's riding to a first century audience. He's writing to Jewish people. He's writing to people that understood the Old Testament. And so Mark has done this on several different occasions. He makes connections between what Christ is doing in the New Testament and the Old Testament prophecies that he's fulfilling. One of the greatest Old Testament prophecies of Christ is found in Zechariah chapter 9. You don't have to flip there, but I want you to listen to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. A prophecy of Jesus written hundreds of years before his birth. Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Isn't that interesting? So, so in the Old Testament, when the, when the Jewish people would have heard this and seen this and understood what Jesus was doing, they would have made this connection between this Old Testament prophecy and Jesus. That's why they respond to him the way they do. They see Jesus as their king. And so they make this proclamation. Look at Mark 11 again, verses 9 and 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Again, this is an Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled. Psalm chapter 118, verse 25 and 26 say, Save us, we pray, O Lord. 
O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Right? Jesus is proclaiming in the way he's, which he's entering the city and the way in which Mark is writing, he's proclaiming that he's Messiah. Right? People are waving palm branches. They're laying down their cloaks. They're cheering. There's excitement for what Jesus is doing. But here's the problem. Right? This is where the application begins to enter our life. Here's the problem. There's lots of religious activity, lots of excitement, lots of cheering, lots of waving of the branches, laying down of the cloaks. But just a few days later, these very same people that were interested in waving their palm branches and cheering for Jesus, when he's arrested and crucified, they're nowhere to be found. Right? Now, some people talk about this crowd as if they're the ones that welcomed him to Jerusalem and then they're the same group that called for his crucifixion later in the week. I don't think that's the case. In fact, the Bible talks about these people as the people that followed Jesus and went ahead of Jesus. The people that are out in the streets when he enters Jerusalem are probably people that came from Galilee with him. Right? He's got a large crowd of followers. There's excitement that's been generated. They've walked down probably from Galilee. They're in the streets cheering for him. Later in the week, those are the people of Jerusalem that didn't know Jesus yet. A lot of the religious leaders. Two entirely different groups of people. But here's the problem. The first group that waved their branches and called for Jesus, they're not interested in helping him or being there with him or picking up their cross and following him when push comes to shove. And here's what we need to understand, right? This is the application for us. Religious activity does not necessarily equate with genuine faith. Just because you wave palm branches and sing and cheer and say all the right things doesn't necessarily mean that Christ is alive in your heart. Now listen, all those things are good, right? Religious activity can be important. We want people to come and we want people to go to Bible studies and do all these things. But it's more than just your outward activity that matters. Do you understand that? It's about your heart. And if you're just showing up and kind of going through the motions, you're just involved in these religious activities, you need to understand this was the problem of these people. It's a problem we're going to see all through chapter 11. It's not enough just to talk the talk, right? It's not enough to kind of pretend to go through the motions. You've got to be willing to do something about it. Now we're going to see in this chapter, Mark's going to kind of continue now this idea. We've got the beautiful picture of Messiah, the glory of Christ, fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, group of people that are excited for him but are not really willing to pick up their cross and follow daily. Now let's take a look at verse 11. Let's continue. So as he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, when they looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12, right? So kind of a clue about what's going to happen. Let me just kind of give you a little indication so you can follow. Mark's going to use this sandwich method again, right? If you haven't been with us, let me just explain it to you. He's going to talk about something. It's going to be the fig tree. That's kind of part A. Then he's going to go to the story of the cleansing of the temple. That's part B. Then he's going to go back to the fig tree story, part A. Right, so A, B, A, all to help us understand this point he's making. So look at verse 12 now. So on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. This is Jesus. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, right? So he sees the leaves. It's a mature tree. He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it's not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Verse 15, here's part B now. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. 
And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teachings. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. Now he's going to go back to it in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Let's stop there for a second. I want you to see the second truth here. Point number two, the fig tree and the temple both point to the danger of outward religion only. The fig tree and the temple are pointing to the danger of outward religion only. Now this is an interesting account because Jesus is going to use a fig tree as an illustration here. And he's going to use the fruit on the fig tree to help us understand something. Now if you've studied scripture before, especially in the New Testament, you'll know that oftentimes believers are talked about as bearing fruit. Right? It says in Scripture we should bear much fruit. And the idea of bearing fruit, if you're not careful, you get confused. Because you begin to think about apples and oranges and pears. Right? But the fruit that the Lord is talking about in the New Testament is different for us. Right? So there's Scriptures that speak about this. And I wanted you to see those. I want you to understand this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. I think we have this on the screen for you to see. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, right? See the difference there between the outward and the inward? Verse 16, you will recognize them, how? By their what? Fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So there's this idea in Scripture that as believers, we should be bearing fruit. You can recognize believers by the fruit that they bear. Now Galatians chapter 5 clues us in on what that fruit ought to look like. The fruit of the Spirit. Some of you have read this before and probably memorized it. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we get this sense in Scripture that as believers we're to bear fruit. Right, we're to have patience and goodness and self-control and love for others. Right? And the scripture teaches you'll know a believer, you'll know another Christian by the fruit that they bear. Now watch, this is important. You won't necessarily know a believer because they're involved in religious activity. Like simply showing up to a church service doesn't make you a believer. Simply showing up to a Bible study doesn't make you a believer. Simply being involved in mission work doesn't make you a believer. All those things are important. I'm not preaching against those things. You need to be doing those things. But if those are the only things you're doing and there's no actual fruit in your life, you're kind of like this fruit tree, aren't you? Kind of like the fig tree. You look good on the outside. You have the leaves and seem to be mature. But when people get to know you a little more and they get up close to you, they realize there's no real fruit in your life. Now, the Old Testament uses Israel and a fig tree kind of together. 
In fact, a lot of times, and this is going to clue us into kind of what Jesus is doing here, the Old Testament speaks about Israel oftentimes as a fruit tree, as a fig tree. For example, Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel, like the first fruit on the fig tree in its season I saw your fathers. Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 5 says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles of Judah, which was part of Israel, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. Right? Jesus is seeing this fig tree, and this is what's important for us to understand. He's seeing the fig tree. He's making a case to these followers, to his disciples, that the people of Israel, the Jewish people, the religious leaders of the day especially, may look good on the outside. They may appear to be very religious, involved in all sorts of activities, but they're not actually bearing fruit. You understand? Now, that's important because he's now going to do the same thing with the temple, right? So we've kind of got the first part of the fig tree. Now we've got the temple story. Look at verse 15. And all these tie together. These are not separated accounts, right? The, 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 the triumphal entry and the, the response of the people, the fig tree and the temple, and then the fig tree again. These are all the same idea. You understand this? Jesus isn't just picking and choosing random different thoughts. He's making a case. He's building a case that the disciples would have understood, the first century Jewish person would have understood, and he wants us to see and understand today. So verse 15 now of Mark chapter 11. Now we're going to think about the temple. So they came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold Pigeons. Now, what you might not understand about the temple is it was a hub of activity in the first century. In fact, you can go back and read Jewish historians that will explain to you all that was involved in sacrifice in the temple. In fact, Josephus, if you've never read him, he's a Jewish historian and he wrote in the first century. He said in one year alone, 255,000 lambs were sacrificed in the temple. Isn't that amazing? 255,000 sacrificed in the temple. Other historians and Mark chapter 11 explained to us that exorbitant fees were charged for these animals. They're sold at inflated prices. Money changers are, are ripping people off. There's corruption throughout, right? And so Jesus walks in and he sees the corruption and he wants to get rid of the people that are selling and the people that are buying. Why? Because Israel, the temple for Israel is the heart of who they are. It's the center point of their worship. It's incredibly important for them to understand and to see what the Lord is doing in the temple and through the temple. And so when Jesus walks into the temple and he sees these people sacrificing falsely and he sees them ripping each other off and doing things they shouldn't be doing, it's the same sort of a picture that we get with the fig tree. Right? There's a lot of religious activity. There are a lot of people doing a lot of things, but at the heart it's corrupt. Right, so there's, there's this warning for us. I just want you to see this and heed this. If you're just involved in a lot of stuff and a lot of religious activity, you need to beware and understand this teaching and try to figure out where genuine faith comes from and how you need to serve the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now we're going to come kind of to the end of this teaching, the end of this passage, and Jesus is going to give what I believe is the important part for us to understand. He's challenged us. He's warned us. He's given us some direction here. But now look at verse 20 again. I want you to kind of pick this back up. Mark eleven twenty. 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered at its roots. 
And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them. Now, this is important, right? This is where we can begin to understand how to apply this to our lives. Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whatever, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Here's the third thing. I want you to see this morning. We've already seen the idea of religion and false religion and activity and external things that don't really relate to the heart. Truth number three, genuine faith flows from the heart. Genuine faith flows from the heart. All right, I'm going to give you kind of three areas here. Jesus talks about this idea of faith. And he's contrasting with us the idea of false religion Outward religion, just doing the things that ought to be done without having a heart for the things of the Lord. And he gives us kind of three areas in here of how we can have faith in God, how we can seek him, how we can grow in our walk. Here's the first one. I'm going to put them on the screen for you, the first one. We need to believe that God will work. Like if you're interested in deepening your faith and deepening your walk and deepening your understanding of Christ, it starts with this idea of faith. It starts with this idea of belief. Right, Jesus answered them in verse 22. Listen to this. Have faith in God. He goes on to say in verse 23, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, verse 24, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Right? This idea of belief this deep abiding faith in the things of the Lord is key to your growing in Christ. I think far too many people miss this. Far too many people want to be involved in religious activities and just kind of show up and walk through the motions without this deep-seated trust that Christ really is who he says he is. That the promises of God are true and real. That the Lord really is at work in our lives. You know, if, if you want to deepen your faith and, and deepen your belief, I would, I would encourage you, one thing you can do, go to the Scripture and read the accounts of the faithfulness of the Lord to the people of Scripture. It's hard to read the story of Abraham without seeing the faith of the Lord. It's hard to read the story of Moses and the story of Noah and the story of Paul and Peter and on and on the list goes without seeing the faithfulness of the Lord in their lives. Be reminded of those things. Be reminded of his faithfulness. Be reminded of how much he works. Be reminded of all the ways in which he's blessed you, all the ways in which he's worked in your life. Christ says we need to believe and have faith. Here's the second thing we see. We need to pray. Mark eleven twenty four 24 says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, this is an interesting passage of Scripture. We could probably do a whole sermon on this because a lot of people come to this and they see, listen, if I ask it in prayer, it's going to be given to me. If I ask it in prayer, the Lord's going to give it to me, no matter what it is, right? So we, if we're not careful, we find ourselves asking things that we want. Lord, I need this or I need that. And we kind of treat God as if he's kind of this uh, genie in the sky and we give him our to-do list. Like, here's the five things I need you to fix, Lord. I'm going to give them to you. I'll come check back with you in a week or two to make sure you fixed all this for me, right? That's not who God is in our lives. In fact, what we see in Scripture is a little bit different than that. 
We see in Scripture that the Lord blesses and uses us when we have this connection with Him. That there's this, this built-in connection in Mark chapter 11 and other parts of the New Testament between our faith in Christ and our prayers. So, for example, John chapter 15, verse 7 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. James chapter 4, verse 23, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Watch this. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There's this idea in Scripture that if if we'll trust the Lord, if, if we'll follow the Lord, if we'll abide in Christ and abide in His words and allow His words to flow in our heart, then our heart will become His heart. You understand? His desires will become our desires. And and then we stop asking for the things we want and we start asking instead for the things that Christ wants within us. For example, Lord, will you increase my faith? Lord, will you strengthen my prayer life? Lord, will you give me the boldness to witness to those people that I know desperately need you? Right, This idea of belief and trust and prayer. And then finally, we need to wind this thing up. Look at verse 15, verse 25. And whatever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Right? One of the greatest signs of a true follower of Christ is the ability to forgive. Right? As Jesus forgave us, we forgive others. And so I, I just want to kind of finish with this idea. I just want to finish with this challenge, just this reminder, maybe this application from the scripture. Like, are we living a life filled with religious activity, void of that deep abiding faith in Christ? Are we just going through the motions? Are we just doing the things because we think those are the things we're supposed to be doing? All the while, we don't really have that belief. We don't really have that faith. We don't really have that prayer. We're not really forgiving others. Christ says, listen, I've got a better plan for you. Trust me. That's what he says. Trust in the Lord. Pray. Forgive others. When we'll do those things, when we'll trust him, when we'll allow him to work in our hearts, he will be honored. He will be glorified. Great things will happen in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, Father. We thank you for this account that we've seen of the triumphal entry, the the glory of Christ, the the beauty of of who he is, Father. He's fully God. He's Messiah. But also, Lord, the challenge of the, the people that were around him, of the people that were in the temple, of the fig tree, being reminded, Lord, that it's more than just religious activity. It's more than just a show we put on, Father. We, we need deep abiding faith. We need belief. We need a prayer life. We need to forgive others, Father. Allow us to be Christ-like from the inside out, Lord. And then as we pray and as we trust and as we give, forgive, Father, that will be demonstrated more and more in our lives. Lord, I I just pray that you would just allow this truth to resonate in our heart. May we hear from you. May you receive honor and glory in everything we say and do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand. The altar is open. opportunity for you to respond. You come as we sing together this morning. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the contact us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.